Hello, good morning. I have the scripture today. It comes from Acts 23. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipartris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullius, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. All right. Good morning. Everybody all right? All right. Hey, oh, good. There was a mouse on the screen for a long time. A little cursor. That's all I could see. I heard nothing that happened as long as that cursor was on that screen. All right. Good to see you guys. Everybody good? I'm feeling rested. I'm feeling, wait, I'm feeling like this is a little high. I don't know. I'm very particular. Um, welcome to Watermark. My name is Tommy. Um, I'll be your preacher this morning. And... Uh, Let's see, I was trying to think. So we actually, the passage that we're actually studying this week, oh, that's not supposed to be up there yet, that's a secret, okay. Um, the passage we're actually studying this week is massive. It, it goes from like near the middle of uh, chapter 23 to way down pretty far in, in, in chapter 24, and rather than torture you all by having somebody read the entire thing, I want to encourage you to read it yourself. There's a, there's a thousand little intricate things that are happening, and when you actually like read commentaries and stuff about it, it, it it's really interesting I just don't want to spend 12 weeks in this passage. So I'm going to spend this morning in this passage, and then we're going to move forward. But here's what I want you to do. I have some commentaries that I was going to put up there. Um, and f- uh, if you're looking for something to talk about in your house church or some studying to do, if you want to try your hand at a little bit of a little biblical exegesis and spend some time with some Bible scholars, uh, these are three that I recommend for this particular passage uh, who seem to have um, some deep insight into what's going on. We've got N.T. Wright, his Acts for Everyone series. He makes... He makes a commentary for every book of the New Testament. Matthew for everyone, Mark for everyone, Luke, blah, 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 blah. Um, and there's also a set for the Old Testament written by another guy named John Golden Gay. That entire set is great and it's approachable for everyone. I'm going to give you a little bit of equipment this morning to take with you. Um, Dean Pinter, Story of God commentary, and then William, uh, William Jennings, Belief commentary on Acts. These are all really, really good commentaries. They're not expensive. Um, and they're sort of like down to earth to read they're not full of like little parentheses and random letters and codes and everything. You're like, I don't know what any of this means. These are great, and you can read them daily. But I, I do encourage you, if you're reading the text, what I always kind of talk about is like, I think people should read the Bible not by themselves. They should read it in community. And sometimes you are by yourself, and you want to read the Bible, and that's great. Um, you can still read it in community by reading it with some Bible scholars, so you don't sort of go off into left field outside of the tradition of, of Christianity and, and create something new and weird. <laughs> it's not what has ever served us well. Um, and so, uh, that's for that. That'll, that'll pretty much cover the entire passage. Um, but I'm going to focus on some very specific things today. I'm talking about um, Paul himself, how, um, who he was, and, and how God sort of created him in a way to perfectly interact with all of these people that he's, he's under arrest, uh, first by the, by the Jewish people, by the Jewish elite, uh, religious elite, and then, and then by the Romans. And it's all very complicated, but he handles it incredibly well. And so I'm going to talk about some of that this morning and, then, and also what it means for us and how we can learn 
to handle strife in communities um, in our incredibly divided and constantly getting worse divided world. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this this morning. Father, uh, I, I ask that you would help us to be here and present this morning. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of pain, a lot of confusion going on in different people's lives, and, and I ask that, um, that we would see each other, that we would let each other know that we're with each other, uh, and we're all collectively moving towards you together. I pray that we would, uh, we would carry each other um, uh, towards you in some way. So I, I pray that this morning that you would begin to work um, in the lives of those in this room, um, whether it's working to, uh, to sort of solidify some joy some people have found in their lives and, and to help them celebrate and, and praise you for that, or, or people who are uh, feeling lonely or depressed or, or cast out or pushed aside. I pray that we would see all of that and that we would allow you uh, to work in our lives in this way. I pray that we would begin to do the work right now of removing all the things that separate us before we come into a room like this, the world has already divided us up into different identities and classes and, and, and all of that. I pray that right now we would push all of that aside and come together as siblings, as one family, to see you and to submit to you. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, we're talking about Paul this morning. Here's a painting I love of Paul that I'm just going to leave up for a while. Um, wow, that's, the colors are really bright this morning. I think it's a little off. Okay. Um, but Paul has been called basically to defend himself. Paul has been arrested originally by the Jewish leaders. Um, Paul grew up a Pharisee, one of the religious elites. And if, if you're a Pharisee, the, the Pharisees were very much sort of in cahoots with the powerful Roman Empire, um, sort of leaders of the, of, of the Roman Empire in, in their particular area of Judea. And so the, the Pharisees were always capable of protecting their own kind against the Roman leaders. They were always able to do that. They're rel- relatively powerful people. Um, but Paul has gotten on the bad side of the Pharisees. And so now Paul is no longer under, under the protection of the Pharisees. In, in fact, what we learned two weeks ago is that the Pharisees, um, many of them took a vow of, uh, uh, to, a vow of abstinence from food and drink of any kind until Paul was dead. They wanted to kill Paul. So they turned on him. And so now that requires that the Roman proconsul sort of arrest Paul and protect him. So Paul was once defended by the Jewish people against the Romans. Now Paul finds himself in the care of the Romans being defended against the Jewish people because Paul is both Jewish and Roman. Um, Paul is a really interesting character. Paul is many things at once, and this is by design. I think this is why God called Paul. Paul, uh, a lot of Christians, I, I like to reiterate this every chance I get because a lot of Christians don't understand the role of Paul. Paul and Jesus were not doing the same thing. Jesus never goes around teaching things like salvation by, by faith through grace. Jesus is having Jewish conversation. Paul is having Gentile conversations. Paul talks about being, uh, including Gentiles and bringing them in and how can they be brought in without the law? Well, their law will be faith. That's what will bring them in. Uh, they're going to have faith in Christ, allegiance in Christ, and this is how, how they're going to be brought in. Paul's entire ministry is centered around including people that have not been included in the people of God. That's his entire ministry. That's why he does everything that he does. That's why he uh, travels the world. That's why he goes to all these different places. That's why he's constantly being arrested um, and thrown in prison because nobody wants outsiders being brought in to any group. Ever. It never is something that people are like really excited about. There's a lot of people who know it's the right and just thing to do. 
And so they trepidatiously move forward doing this and, and merging groups of people together who historically have fought a lot. But Paul is different. And what makes Paul different is that Paul is both sides in his own body. He is Jewish and he is Roman. This puts him in a weird position to straddle these two worlds and, and the two enemies that you find. You find them right in Paul's body, but it's not just that. Paul represents, if I were to draw a graph of like everything that Paul represents in his, in his person, he is both high status and low status. So he, if you were a Roman, then you'd probably look at Paul as low status because Paul's Jewish. Uh, and so you don't typically respect Paul, but you have to sort of respect his Jewish status. And so there's, there's some honor there, but by and large, he's bottom of the ladder. If you're Jewish, you look at Paul as, oh, Paul's Roman. Uh, and he spends a lot of time with sinners. Uh, and, and, and he's in a, a weird sect of Judaism called the way is what they were calling it at this time. Um, it would later become Christians. Christian would become an insult because they wanted to insult the Christians by saying, oh, your leader was crucified like a villain like an insurrectionist, and that's who you follow. So they started calling us Christians as an insult to lower you down, and the Christians were like, perfect, that's exactly what Jesus did. He was lowered. What else you got? We'll take the name. We're Christians. Um, And so Paul fits sort of into everything. Uh, If you're Roman, you have a view of him. If you're Jewish, you have a view of him. Uh, He's both an academic and a working class person. He's both a highly educated, speaks multiple language, highly educated Jewish Pharisee. He's also a tent maker from Tarsus, which I've talked about a lot. It was, it was considered the worst, what they called a useless rabble. Uh, what, what, what was it? Um, linen workers from Tarsus is what Dio Chrysostom said, uh, early church father. He says, yeah, they were, they were basically a useless rabble. Uh, they were in, and, and Paul went into this profession probably on purpose to lower his status. He's not against lowering his status. He doesn't care how you think of him. He actually wants you to think of him less. And so Paul is like straddling all of these worlds. Um, he's both white collar and blue collar worker. Like he's both at the same time. And all of these sides were against each other. The poor are blaming the wealthy because they're in charge of everything. And so if society's not good, it's the, richest, it's the rich people's fault. Uh, and the wealthy are blaming the poor. And we, we do all of this in our modern society too. There's the poor, there's always, they'll say, there's always a group of people who won't participate in you know, the, the, the markets and blah, blah, blah. And so they blame poverty on the poor for being unrighteous, making bad decisions, which is why Jesus starts his entire Sermon on the Mount with, did you know the poor are blessed too? Blessed are the poor. That would have been a shock to them. They thought only the rich were blessed. Everyone did. And he says, yeah, they're blessed too. It's not that they're not blessed. They're blessed, but also you're just as blessed. And so Paul is at both ends of every spectrum. Uh, outside of Paul's body, all of these different sides of him are enemies in society. But they all somehow come together in Paul's body. And so never once will you see Paul slander a group of people. Paul will never make any generalized claim about an entire group of people. And when he does, um, he's using it as an example, and then he turns it upside down. Romans 1 is a great example. Near the end of Romans 1, he talks about Gentiles. And we're going to go into Romans, um, I think, next after Acts. But he launches into this tirade on the Gentiles. They're disgusting, and, and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're sexually immoral. And he goes like this. And what he's doing, he's trying to get the Jewish people riled up in the room. And as they, yeah, 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 they talk bad about him. He turns around and he goes, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, and you are no different when you point, out, when you point this out. It puts you on the exact same level as them. What Paul is doing is he's saying there's never a space in which we can cast these judgments over these people. Instead, we enter into relationship. We welcome them in to the table, 
to experience Jesus together with us. And so, Paul, having such diversity in his own body, he meets his enemy on different terms than the rest of us do. And how could he not? Um, before he was a follower of the way, uh, as they were called this time, he was a Pharisee. He's protected by power. And so he's been protected by one group and now he's protected by the other group. So he's made these acquaintances and friends in every single group. And there he stands in the middle of this huge sort of wagon wheel of, of diverse identities all around him fighting. And, and Paul stands in the middle and says, but I know you and I love you and I know you and I love you and I know, and you're all trapped. You're all enslaved by the ideologies that you're in. By the way, you know how you rec- uh, recognize an ideology in your life? If you claim to believe something and you fight over something and you accuse other people of this thing and, and, and you push, but that actual thing has nothing to do with your actual discipleship as a Christian. If I'm anti this and it has no bearing on my daily formation as a Christian, if it doesn't do anything in my life and make me more Christ-like, that's an ideology and you should rethink that. Um, we focus on the things that Jesus is bringing into our life and we welcome people in and we gather to work together towards Christ in these things. And so in this way, Paul not only embodies Christ through his cross-shaped life, um, Paul is living this life where he's constantly being beaten and abused and uh, his body broken and his blood poured out. It, it, the same thing we celebrate in communion. Paul is experiencing this all the time. His life looks like it's, it's cross-shaped, as we, could, uh, as, as we should say. It's, it's cruciform. Um, and it's not only that that represents Christ. Paul's body itself also represents the church very, very well. Um, I want to read you a, um, I, I think there's a book in the lobby by Scott McKnight called uh, A Fellowship of Difference. I wanted to read you a, uh, a sort of a excerpt from that book. It says, the Christian life is not just about how I'm doing as an individual, but especially about how we are doing as a church. And how what I am doing in that mix of others called the church. God has designed the church. And this is the heart of Paul's mission. To be a fellowship of difference and difference. Uh, It is a mixture of people from all across the map and spectrum. Men and women, rich and poor. It is a mix of races and ethnicities. Caucasian, African Americans, uh, Mexican Americans, Latin Americans, Asian Americans, and Indian Americans. Obviously he's talking about the American church and sending a message to them because the American church for a very long time now has been very good at doing exactly what the world is doing and separating everybody into these little groups and deciding who's in and who's out. But what Paul understood is that actually nobody's on the inside except for Jesus. He's the only one on the inside. All the rest of us are on the outside. And instead of staying inside, Jesus opens the door and walks out to where we are instead of demanding that we enter in. Jesus joins us where we are and leads us collectively. Not because you've done anything special, not because you're part of the in-group. There is no in-group. Um, and so even if your particular gathering, if you, if you picture the church in Jerusalem in the first century, it wasn't particularly diverse. And that wasn't the point. That church was Jewish Christians. But they knew that God was calling them to be a part of a body. They're part of the church. And the church is not just like them. The church around the world, around Judea at the time, was growing in diversity. And so they knew that they were a part of something that also Gentiles were a part of. And that women and slaves and and outsiders and immigrants, they were all a part of. And so when they say, I'm a part of the church, they're saying they are a part of a very, very diverse group. And that alone is what begins to throw off sort of the, the, 
the chains that the world puts upon all of us. Um, the world meets its enemies. Because here's the thing. When you realize how big the church is, what you begin to realize is you have enemies uh, in, in the church. Those people that, those people that you, uh, that society has told you are your enemies, um, they're also in the church. They're also your brothers and sisters. And this is the beginning of, of where the separations begin to break down. This is why the church is supposed to be so disruptive in the world. This is why governments always interact with the church because they want to control it. Because what the church naturally does is unwinds and takes apart all the ideologies that they are putting upon us to separate us all into little groups so that they can control. But the world meets its enemies on the battlefield, either on the battlefield or at the negotiating table, in the debate room, maybe competing in the marketplace. They have enemies. There are tons and tons of enemies. We all do. And they tell you who your enemies are. And you, and you think in your mind, well, they're out there. And if I want to see my enemy, I can meet them on the battlefield or I can meet them in the courtroom. Or I can, there's all these different ways that I don't go to that part of town. I don't go to this and I don't hang out with these people. I don't go to this establishment because my enemy is there. And the point of the church is to wake you up and say, you can't avoid your enemy. They're in the church. They are your brother and your sister. And at some point, you are going to have to take communion with them. At some point, you're going to realize that what actually brings you together is the broken body of Christ and the poured out blood of Christ. That's what brings you together. So the Christian is very always surprised to meet her enemy within the church, its own family. Um, you talk, whenever the church goes to war, I, I think one thing, whenever America, our country goes to war, I think one thing the pastors need to do is stand up and remind people, oh, by the way, whatever side of that war you're on, the opposite side, there is a church there and these people are Christians there as well. They're trying to follow Jesus in some way. Maybe they've gotten him wrong. Maybe they've gotten him way wrong. Maybe they've distorted him on purpose so that they can commit atrocities. But that doesn't separate them from you. That actually reveals that you and them are just kind of the same because you do this all the time too. Maybe not on huge scale, but on small scale so that you can get your way. We manipulate all kinds of things. But what we need to realize is when a war breaks out between America and Iraq, um, the leaders in the church need to say, oh, by the way, you have Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq that are actually serving in the, in the military. By the way, you have Christian brothers and sisters in Russia that are serving in the military. By the way, you have Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. You have Christian brothers and sisters everywhere and you can paint them up as your enemy all you want and God wants to remind you they're your brother they're your sister they're your family stop letting them out there determine who your enemy is we have no enemies and the reason we notice is because we find them in the church we do not meet our black and brown brothers and sisters our Asian Native American brothers and sisters on the opposite ends of culture and society we meet them in the body of Christ alongside of us this is where we meet them. The two sides come together in one body, the church. We don't meet our immigrant, immigrant brothers and sisters on the other side of a wall. We don't meet our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters on the opposite side of some protest or political cultural divide. We meet them in the church and we recognize them as our brothers and sisters and we walk with them towards Christ and we ask the spirit to do his thing and to form us to be like Jesus. And we ask the, we ask the spirit to grow in us uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. By the way, I want, I want to point out self-control is the fruit of the spirit. Nobody ever wants to go that far. They stop right before they get there. Self-control is one of the ways, one of the evidences that you're part of the body of Christ, that you're following Jesus. Maybe we should pray for that a little bit too. That's a side note. Here we go. Um, uh, the, the day of Pentecost, what that revealed is 
a God who is transcending every separation between you and me. Every separation God is transcending. And, and this plays out all kinds of ways. Um, it's disruptive. It's, this is the disruptive nature of the church, that it goes into a community who draws its boundaries and says, we're who's in. And we say, great, we should plant a church. And then you plant a church and you realize they're worshiping Jesus and they realize, oh, our enemies actually have a church too. They're our brothers and sisters and God's ultimate plan is to bring us together. I'm wildly uncomfortable with this. The church disrupts society. It always should. Um, it's, there's a way that power structures work in the world. Um, and I, I want to spend some time, I guess, talking about this this morning as well. Um, and there is a specific way that they are, they are trying to maintain control and, and trying to keep Christianity very docile. Uh, and, and not dangerous, but Christianity cannot actually be contained when a group of people actually begin to follow Jesus and actually listen and get led by the spirits uh, instead of following some uh, you know, charismatic leader who tells you everything to think. We gather together separately, we listen to the spirit, and we follow that spirit into what, exactly what God is, is doing. Um, and here's the way this works. As people, as, as people grow in their faith, as they grow in discipleship, as they are spiritually formed to become more and more like Christ, um, God begins to sort of disrupt them on the inside as they do their work in the world in these earthly kingdoms. Maybe it's a cop interacting with a suspect. Maybe it's a soldier interacting with a citizen of the country that they are occupying, perhaps, in some military conflict. The Christian formation in the church is really aimed at disrupting those separations there. The, these separations, the... the, 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 the the cop and, and the person, the, the suspect is with, the soldier and the, the occupant. These are separations put there by the earthly empires. And what God actually wants to do is for the soldier and the police officer to realize and to open their eyes and realize, oh, this is actually my equal, my brother and my sister. Any, any thought to like, I'm over them or they're under me, that's all fake and created by society. That's not the view that Jesus has. And part of it is that we should somehow... Like we're called to be a city on a hill. Somehow the church should be this example where a person over another person realizes, oh, this is my brother or sister in Christ. You're, are you, you're a Christian? And then suddenly they see themselves submitting together to each other on the same level and, and, and the authority of the world begins to like pull back as the authority of the kingdom of God breaks through. And we begin to realize that like, oh, there's something deeper happening and that is possible and that can happen all around us. Um, this is what the world needs to see, honestly. Christians acting like a family. If the world never sees this, there's no reason for the world ever to draw near to Jesus. There's not, we, we offer nothing different. We, all, we tend to offer the same exact solutions. When evil rises up, we tend to say, well, let's commit violence on them. That'll keep it from happening again. That's not the solution of Jesus. That's the solution of every nation that has ever lived, and that's how we got here now. If Jesus isn't offering any other new solutions, what is the point of the church? There's not one. It just becomes a civil religion, and we fly the flags while we commit whatever atrocities we want to commit. And God is trying to wake you up to realize the people you are committing atrocities against or the people you're partnering with who are committing the atrocities, there's a good chance that they understand who Jesus is and that they're trying to follow Jesus in some way, no matter how wrong they may be, your role is to see them as your brother and sister and to snap out of it. That's it. So let's talk about how power forms communities. Worldly power. Um, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes, mistakes the church has made over the last 1,700 years, and especially, especially over the last 30 years that I've been here watching, um, uh, is 
is that we borrow, again, power structures from the world and their systems. We, we borrow their power structures. We, we set up hierarchies. Um, we hire pastors like CEOs. We set up churches like businesses and companies and corporations. Um, we sell merchandise and, and it's, it's, it's weird. We're just like what's going on out there. There's really no point to any of us if we're just like them. But this is how a power structure works in the world. And instead of being led by the spirit in a communal manner, we tend to adopt these structures that, that, that concentrate power at the top and then, and then shoot down and tell everyone else what to do. But the pastor's not actually at the top. Jesus is, the spirit is. The pastor's a shepherd to bring you to Jesus. That's the role of the pastor. And I'm not the only pastor in the room. There are dozens of them. They don't all hold positions and titles, but they're pastoring people. Um, worldly power functions from the top down in this authoritarian sort of coercive kind of way. If we in the general population see something that we don't like, and this is how it works in the world, if we see something we don't like, what we tend to do is we say, oh, this person on my level, they're doing something I don't like. I'm gonna go to the top and I'm gonna complain and I want you to use your power to stop them. Who? The person I live next door to. And so we'll call the HOA. Get them. Because this is how earthly power works. We go to the top and we shoot down. We want the people at the top to absolutely wield their power and punish the people at the bottom. Is that me? What's happening? Am I? Oh, I'm getting a, a motion from the sound guy. I don't know what to do. Did I? Am I still on there? Can you hear me? Am I up? I got a no and I got a yeah. Check. Pause. Intermission. Median vibes. All right, here we go. Check, check. What do I do with this thing now? This is crazy. Oh, it's stuck in my hair. What are we going to do? Okay. Take a second. Give me a second. I feel like a robot. All right, so anyways, what we do is we go to the top and we tell them, control the people at the bottom. When in fact... We could go to them ourselves, but we don't want to do that because they're different and they're, it's too volatile. And so we'll just wield power and we'll control them. Um, and the problem is when, uh, when they don't, when they don't go along with what we'd like them to do, uh, there's several things we have to do. We, we can ostracize them. We can punish them. We can find them. We can take their money. We can throw them in prison. There's all kinds of things we can do um, to get people to do what we want. None of these things were invented by Jesus. Jesus didn't use any of them to change anybody. Um, this is not how Jesus works. This is not how the kingdom of God works. This is how the kingdom of America works and really every kingdom that has ever existed in this world. They're all the same. And the problem is that the church imports and exercises worldly power, even in the church. You'd be surprised how many people come to me and say, I'm going to need you to go talk to so-and-so. Really? Why? Well, they're doing this and that's not right. Well, I'll set up a meeting. Let's, let's go together. Let's go talk to him. No, no, you, you got this. I don't know what to say. I'm not educated in the thing. Well, I can educate you and you can go talk to them about it. No. And then they end up leaving the church because they refuse to talk to the person that they don't like or they're upset with or, or that they don't agree with. And this is how the sort of the, the church mimics the corporate sort of power structures of the world. But when we do this, the problem is that people believe, begin to believe that God is like that. That we go to God and say, God, use your wrath to get rid of the people that I hate. Take care of them. And 
we believe eventually that God becomes just like that. And God becomes just like us. And we, we justify all kinds of abuses in the name of unity and holiness. We'll never be a unified church or a holy church as long as this person and that person and that person are here. So you need to go, shoo, get rid of them. This isn't what Jesus has ever done. Ever. That's not how it works. The kingdom of God does not use their methods. The, 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 the power in the world is power over people. The power in the kingdom is power with people. That you're with them. Um, it, it's very different. It's a kingdom so dis- that, that disrupts people by, by gathering people together with others, with difference, with outsiders, so that you can enter sort of into these transformational relationships and you can see people differently and you can see what God is doing. We tend to come to people with all kinds of ideas about exactly what God needs to do in their life. You have no idea what God needs to do in anybody's life. You don't know them. You're projecting all your fears and maybe some bad interpretations of scripture or some uh, biases that you have that were put in you by the culture around you, and I understand that. We all bring that with us, and we all carry that with us. But when you enter into the church, we submit to each other. We are with each other. When, when we enter into the church, we realize and accept and admit the people the world has made our enemies are here with us, and we love them. We have to, because God has brought them in. And Paul understood this, and the reason Paul understood this is because Paul physically was this in his body. That's why Paul could interact in all these different ways with all these different people and love them and not stand up and condemn them, but invite them to follow Jesus together. It's, it's an issue of, of pulling, not pushing. It's the old Dallas Willard line, many things can be pulled which can never be pushed. Many, many things. We join people and we invite them to follow Jesus. And not only that, we also submit to them and they submit to us and we walk together as we follow Jesus in this way. The kingdom disrupts us so much in this way. The kingdom uh, power does not approach anyone from the top down using hierarchical form. The kingdom of God is not a pyramid, it's a table. We're setting out a meal and we are not the host, Jesus is. And we gather not at our table. This is what bugs me so bad when, church gets, when the church gets in debates about who gets to take communion, who gets to serve communion, and who can do this or that. And people come to me sometimes and they're like, uh, why aren't you serving communion? Why are you letting other people serve communion? Look, this is not my table. This is Jesus' table. I'm lucky to be sitting at it with you. At any turn in my life, I could have made a decision that sends me down any other path. And I always have that like Spurgeon sort of thing in my brain. It's like... It, you know, when, when people are talking terrible about other people and the things that they've done, <laughs> there, but if not for the grace of God, go I. The only reason I'm not there is because for some reason God has intervened and kept me from going there. And until we can get this kind of humility and humble ourselves in this way, we will never understand or appreciate what God is actually doing. If you think you're a good shepherd, a good pastor or leader to God's people, then they will feel like you are with them on the journey, not over them. But running ahead saying, come on, it's this way. Not standing above and saying, you shape up or you get out. Let's watch how Paul lives this out real fast. Uh, look at uh, verse 22 through 27. It says this. There's, there's this interaction with this guy, Felix. He's one of the proconsuls. And it comes, and, and, and they basically lock Paul up here. And this is going to say they put Paul in prison for two years. And over and over and over again, this guy calls Paul back in, trying to get him to give him a bribe so that he can let him out of prison. And Paul just doesn't. He's just not interested. 
He's like, I'll stay in the prison. Obviously, we're not done talking. God's still working. If, I, if God was done talking to you through me, I'd be gone already, but he's not. All right, let's read this. It says in verse 22, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, that's what they were called, he adjourned the proceedings. And when, when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and, and, and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, Beautiful name if you're looking for a baby named Drusilla, uh, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness and self-control, the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. And when I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time that he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, he sent for, he sent, uh, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Uh, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, if you're looking for another name, Portius. Uh, and, and, and because Felix was, uh, wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So he, for two years, tries to get a bribe out of him, listens to him talk about Jesus, and it terrifies him when he talks about the, the judgment, he's like, oh, by the way, did you know that the person judging, he goes, oh, yeah, I, I'm sure in, in the Roman mindset in the first century, judgment was based upon your status, right? Like, that's how everyone thought. The, how the world looks at me, that's how God looks at me. That's how the gods look at me. And so when judgment happens, I'm going to be judged based on my high status, and God's going to approve. Paul thought this before he met Jesus, by the way. That's why he changed so much. Um, and Paul explains to this man, oh, the, the great judge of all? Oh, it's a Jewish peasant. And the Roman soldier's like, oh no. I've treated these Roman peasants so bad for so long. And he's terrified. Things are upside down. He's beginning, Paul's revealing to him how different things are than the way he actually thought they were. So Paul takes this man who is trying to sort of bribe from him, and Paul knows it. But he doesn't care. He keeps going back. Why? Because Paul follows a rabbi who, while they were crucifying him, and driving nails into his, into his hands and mocking him, ripping out his beard and stripping him naked and, 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 and bargaining over his clothes, Jesus is, is calling out to, father, to the Father and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just, I'm asking that you would forgive them. They don't understand. They think they know what they're doing, but they just don't. I can't imagine how many times Jesus prays this prayer over us every single day in this country. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the amount of love that falls upon us. I mean, when was the last time you prayed for any of your enemies and said, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. If they could see what I see, they wouldn't do this. It's hard. I can't remember the last time I prayed that prayer. Over your enemy, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. And this is, is the posture that Paul moves through this world with. Maybe, maybe somebody's maliciously hurting him. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They just don't understand. Look what Paul says in verse 15. Let's go a little farther. He says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves has, have, uh, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He's talking to the Romans. And he's saying, look, I'm no different from them. He's not even talking bad about the people trying to kill him. He's like, I'm actually one of them. I, I have the same beliefs and hopes that they do. And what Paul is saying is what also we need to say about our enemies. We all kind of want the same thing. We want peace. We want to be able to raise our families in peace. We want to have loving relationships 
where somebody really cares and reaches out and sees us, we all want the same things. And we're all following different idols to try and get these things. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If they knew what they were doing, they wouldn't be doing that. Look at verse 17. It says, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Now, I wanted to bring this up again. I've talked about this a couple of times. Paul, for 20, 20 or 25 years of his ministry, um, two decades of it was, was dedicated to gathering money for the Jewish Christians, the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And it's an interesting sort of mission that he's on, and there's a reason he's doing it, and it's completely contextual to the first century in the Roman context. Back then, you know, we talk about grace as if, and we say, what's grace? Oh, it's a free gift. Sure, uh, it actually wasn't in the first century. It wasn't a free gift. It was, it was a way that you build a relationship with somebody. You offer them a gift that they cannot provide for themselves. If you're a higher status person and they're lower status, you offer them a gift. And the point of this is you're inviting them into a reciprocal relationship. All they have to do now is return with something, anything. It can be as small as singing the glory and the praises of the person that that gave you the gift. And this would raise both of your status together. This is how the grace relationship worked. You would offer something to somebody and it was expected that they would give back to you and this would open up the door and things would go back and forth and you would begin to take care of each other. And this is how it worked in the first century, um, raising statuses and, and building relationships with outsiders, with people that you wanted to connect with. And so Paul is ministering to all these Jewish people. He's, he's gather, I mean, Gentile Christians, he's gathering them into churches and he's trying to figure out how, how can I, would I embody the, the Roman, the Gentile, and the Jew together in the same body? How can I create a body of Christ that are these two people together? I know. I'll do the thing we all recognize. It'll be a grace relationship. And so he goes, and for 20 years, he gathers an offering, a huge offering for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem from the Gentiles. And he travels, and he talks about it all the time. It's all through the Bible. Actually, once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. Now concerning the collection for the saints. That's it right there. It's at the forefront of his ministry, is to bring enemies together. He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. He got it from Jesus. He says, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He goes, uh, it says, now concerning the collection for the saints, I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he, as he may prosper, so that there will be no, uh, no collecting when I come. Uh, and when I arrive, I will send those uh, whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul's not even going to handle the money so they don't think it's for, for him. It's for the Jewish Christians who are poor and who will not let Gentiles join their church. And Paul says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to gather up an offering from them, a huge lump sum of money. I'm going to take it there as a gift and say, look what the Gentiles brought you. Look how badly they want to be included. That's all they want is to be included. Why can't you accept their gift? And you know what? Oh, look at Romans 15 as well. One more. Uh, pray. He asked him, he goes, and by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem. I want you to pray that my services for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's like, I want so bad for them to receive the money. That's all I want is for them to receive the money. If they receive it, it starts the relationship. And you know what? There's not a lick of evidence that they, that they accepted the money. Not in church history. Not in, there, there is, no one ever mentions it again. 
If it had been mentioned, there probably would have been writings. I think it was rejected. I think they were so prideful about who they were and about their long history that everything Paul tells them about, Paul tries to even remind them in the book of Romans. He says, the entire point of your whole journey of, of, of Genesis all the way to Malachi, the whole point of it, according to Elijah and Elisha, was so that you would welcome people who have never been included. That was the point of the whole story. And they're like, that's never, that's never gonna be the point of our story. Our story is about us. Your story and your life isn't even about you. It's about God's world. You have a role to play. You're not an individual. You're a, you're, you're a part of a people. And we walk out these doors and, and, and they're just scattering labels all over you to separate you. We are brothers and sisters. We are equals. We are siblings. There are no enemies in this room. Any other church that is gathered this morning, in my mind, they are my brothers and sisters as well. If I put out the communion table, they're going to take communion with me. I may have some serious words to say to some of them, but they are my brothers and sisters. They are not my enemy. It has to transcend. Our faith has to transcend all of it or there is no point to it. God didn't die to send everyone to heaven. He, he died to plant the kingdom of God in this world and bring it down here so that for all of eternity, we can dwell with him in it as one people and all of creation will see just how good our King Jesus is. We aren't, we aren't what they say we are. We are one family. Um, I think about this, how they didn't accept the gift. I'm going to sort of wrap it up here because um, I'm so far over. Oh, not. I got plenty of that. No, it's okay. Um, I, when, I, when I think about this gift and them not accepting this, I, I, know what it's, I know what it's like to take a gift to somebody, to try to patch things up, to reach out. I know what it's like to do something for somebody and nothing is returned and they refuse. I know what Paul's going through. Perhaps you know what Paul's going through and you've been there. You've tried to patch things up and make it right again with people. People who hate you, people who think you're an evil, heretic, enemy, all the names they called you and you've reached out and it's not reciprocated and they will not enter into a Christ-like grace relationship with you. I understand that. I'm with you. And I imagine that if we think very deeply, there's a lot of people who have been working very hard, though, um, to be included by me as well. To be included by you. There are people who are working very hard to be included by you. Do you realize that? There are people working very hard to be included by you. And you can see them. You see their faces. You know, you're trying to think of someone else right now. Stop. Like, that's, that's them. And they're trying so hard. And, and your ego is keeping you from lowering yourself. Your ego is keeping you from dropping down and, and saying, you know what, I'm no better than you. The things that I have done to people are the same. Part of my daily spiritual formation that I've found, one of the things that like personally helps me be spiritually formed is about 15 times a day, I've learned to ask myself the question, why, why did that make me so defensive? All day. And to recognize when you're mad at something and just stop and say, 
Why am I so defensive about this? It always goes back to ego. It always goes back to something that the empire has pushed upon me so that I can't look at people the way that Jesus does. And I buy into the walls of separation that society puts between me and others. That's why it makes me defensive because it asks something of me. It asks me to lower myself, my status. It, and my ego is in the way. And part of it, part of the Christian walk is simply learning to humble yourself below your level of outrage. There, but for the grace of God, go you. You didn't do anything special to avoid their sin. You just simply took a different path. You didn't know. They don't know either. And God is asking us to transcend all of that bullcrap to rise above all of it and to recognize this is my brother, this is my sister. I will commit no act of hatred or violence. I will not judge. I will get to know you. I will enter into transformational relationship with you and you and I together will walk towards Jesus with open hands saying, do what you want, God. This is the only way forward for the church in America at this point. This is the only hope we have. And we don't do this because it's pragmatic. We don't draw near to our enemies because it's pragmatic. It's not. It hurts really bad. We do it because it's Christ-like. That's it. So when you talk about loving your enemies and someone interjects and says, that's a terrible idea, and here's why, you could say, of course it's a terrible idea. Paul said that. It's foolishness. But it's what Christ did, and it's what Christ is calling me to do. And if I want to follow Christ, this is the way forward. This is it. And so maybe this week you could practice that. You, you could think about all of the people who are trying to win you back, people who are reaching out to you. And show a little grace. Maybe you can see the ego that you have that is keeping you from loving the people around you. Maybe you can start to see the walls of separation that the world is putting up between you and them. And then realize they are my brother and my sister and my family bond is stronger than any of this. And together, me and them are going to work to rise above it all. I don't know what that looks like, but there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of work to be done. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what any of this means for all of us individually or communally, but I trust that you're guiding us. I pray that we would have your countenance upon us all the time. That when we see people no matter how they're dressed, no matter how they look, no matter any of it, that we would see them and not judge, but instead judge ourselves as unworthy of their friendship. And that we would move towards them in the same way that you move towards the same people that you knew were going to kill you. You knew they didn't know what they were doing. And it was your cross-like actions cross-shaped life that brought it all together into fruition. Humble us. Let us throw out our arrogance. We rule over nothing. You rule over it all. Help us to follow you. There are no outsiders. There are no insiders. We are all on the outside and you are on the inside and you have come out to meet us. You have come down the ladder to join us where we are. Help us to see that when we draw the line and we push people out, that what we will see when we open our eyes is you on the other side of that line. 
calling us to cross it. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? And uh, we'll close in the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you all. Grace and peace. Have the best Sunday you've ever had.